There was a knock one morning, a man was standing at my door. He said, hello, I'm from Halliburton, have you heard of us before? We'd like to lease your backyard to drill for natural gas. It's called hydraulic fracturing, and it is the very past for a clean energy future above the Marcella Stone. Plus, we'll give you lots of money and a new mobile phone. I said, you are a corporate crook. I don't believe the things you tell, and you can drive right off my property and then go straight to hell. No fracking way. No fracking way, I don't trust corporate salesmen, whatever they may say. No fracking way, no fracking way, no fracking way. No fracking way, no fracking way. And that was an excerpt of the song No Fracking Way, sung by David Rovix. You can find that entire song on the album Big Red Sessions. Welcome to Frack You Very Much, a fracking terrible podcast. You can find all the back episodes of this podcast at frackyouverymuch.com. You'll also find a link there to send me a message. You'll find some links there as well to make a donation. You can make a one-time or recurring donation to keep this podcast free and independent. First up is a story published at ConsumerReports.org, written by Elena Bruce. Lisa Finley DeVille started drinking bottled water around the same time her friend's horses began to get sick and die. A half decade ago, on the Fort Berthold Indian Reservation in western North Dakota, Finley DeVille drove up to see her friend in the Newtown area. The horses looked dehydrated and brittle, just skin and bones. They're eating, but it's like they're not eating, her friend told her. The explanation, Finley DeVille believes, was down the hill at the pond the horses drank from. She suspects wastewater from nearby oil and gas production leaked there, where the horses drank it up, poisoned. I'm always worried, Finley DeVille says. This is why we don't drink the water. Finley DeVille is a member of the Mandan, Hidatsa, and Arikara Nation, known as the three affiliated tribes in Fort Berthold. Just a half mile from her house, in the town of Mandaree, oil and gas are produced by hydraulic fracturing, or fracking, an increasingly popular approach to fossil fuel extraction that involves injecting pressurized water, sand, and chemicals into the earth to release the gas or oil within. Legal loopholes that exempt fracking from elements of the Safe Drinking Water Act and the Environmental Protection Agency's hazardous waste laws are endangering surrounding communities and putting drinking water at risk of contamination. Now national, state, and local grassroots groups, some led by Finley DeVille, are calling for change. The Fort Berthold Reservation, along with the Standing Rock Sioux Reservation to the south, blisters with oil underneath. The two areas sit within the prolific Williston Basin, a large rock unit stretched across North Dakota, South Dakota, Montana, and regions of Canada. From the first discovery of a natural gas well in the state in 1892 to today, western North Dakota has been home to the fossil fuel industry for more than a century. The state was the second largest crude oil producer between 2013 and 2019, trailing only Texas, and accounts for 2% of the nation's natural gas reserves. Thanks largely to fracking technology, oil production in North Dakota has increased fourfold since 2010, with the state producing an unprecedented 45 million barrels in 2019. Although a collapse in oil demand in 2020 curbed the boom, fracking has left its mark. Wastewater, a combination of flowback, a portion of the water used to fracture the rock to release fossil fuels that flow back to the surface, and naturally occurring, quote, produced water that the fracking process forces to the surface, is still ever-present. 
According to a report published by the nonprofit environmental organization Earthworks, fracking produced 19 billion gallons of wastewater in North Dakota in 2018 alone. The risk to drinking water comes in two major ways. First, water used in the hydraulic drilling process can leak into aquifers and other groundwater supplies. Second, the wastewater that fracking produces can contaminate supplies when waste leaks from landfills that accept oil remains, when waste spills from trucks or pipelines moving it, when equipment fails, or when waste leaks from unlined disposal pits. Both flowback and produced water may contain heavy metals such as barium and lead, hydrocarbons, naturally occurring radioactive material, and incredibly high levels of salinity. Flowback and produced water can also include chemical additive formulas with volatile organic compounds such as benzene, ethylene glycol, methanol, and toluene. Between 2005 and 2013, the EPA identified 1,084 chemicals reported in fracking formulas. In North Dakota, wastewater is normally disposed of in storage pits or underground disposal wells, taken to treating plants that process the waste, or, in some cases, spread on roads as a de-icer. But sometimes, whether in transportation or equipment malfunction, the wastewater can spill into the environment, contaminating the land and water around and beneath it. A pipeline rupture in 2014 spilled a million gallons of wastewater on the Fort Berthold Reservation and contaminated Bear Den Bay in Lake Sakakawea, a quarter mile from where the town of Mandaree draws its drinking water. Bill Seuss, the program manager for spill investigation at the North Dakota Department of Environmental Quality, says his team checked the intake system and didn't find any elevated levels of contaminants probably because of the amount of fresh water in the lake. Avner Vengosh, a professor of Earth and Ocean Sciences at Duke University, led a study in 2016 that found elevated levels of fracking-related contaminants in North Dakota at sites including Bear Den Bay. The researchers detected high levels of salts, ammonium, selenium, lead, and other toxic substances, as well as radium, a naturally occurring radioactive element found in wastewater as many as four years after original spills. The team checked the Mandaree water intake as well, Vengosh says, but did not find any elevated levels. Quote, There's a large amount of the waste from the different parts of the oil and gas cycle, says Amy Mall, a senior advocate at the Natural Resources Defense Council and a consultant on the Earthworks report. The waste can be very toxic, and it also can leak or spill or otherwise get into the environment. So there are concerns about how the waste is regulated, whether it's being regulated in a way that is adequately protective to human health. One concern is an exemption from the Safe Drinking Water Act, known as the Halliburton Loophole. That exempts industry from having to disclose the chemicals it uses in fracking and prevents the EPA from regulating fracking fluids. The loophole was established in an energy bill passed by the Bush-Cheney administration in 2005 and has been in effect ever since. Quote, The purpose of the Safe Drinking Water Act is to protect our drinking water and the industry that is pumping toxic chemicals carcinogenic chemicals, underground doesn't even have to tell us what those are, says Melissa Troutman, research and policy analyst at Earthworks. The oil and gas industry is also exempt from federal EPA hazardous waste regulations and Superfund regulations, which exclude waste associated with the exploration, development, and production of crude oil and natural gas. Drilling fluids, produced water, and other waste are not disposed of as hazardous and are exempt from the hazardous waste cleanup process when it comes to spills or leaks. The industry has been exempt from these regulations since the 1970s, when the EPA temporarily proposed that oil and gas waste was not hazardous. This ruling became permanent in 1988, when the agency determined that the cost of treating the waste would slow production. The organization Frack Tracker Alliance 
calculated hundreds of brine and crude oil spills throughout the region. More recently, a 34,000-gallon wastewater pipeline spilled north of Newtown in June this year, and two pipeline spills deposited 21,000 gallons of wastewater into a Missouri River tributary in 2019. According to the North Dakota government's spill database, more than 400 wastewater spills were reported in 2018. Several portions of North Dakota's sandstone aquifers are exempt from the Safe Drinking Water Act. The EPA has determined that the portions do not currently serve as a source of water and will not serve as one in the future, allowing the oil and gas industry to use the aquifer for extraction and disposal of waste. There are three aquifer exceptions in the Fort Berthold Reservation, according to the EPA Underground Injection Control Program, all used for produced water disposal. Once used, that portion of the aquifer can never be used for drinking water in the future. For Finley DeVille, solving fracking and wastewater comes down to these regulations. She is co-founder and treasurer of the Fort Berthold Protectors of Water and Earth Rights, or POWER, an organization formed in 2015 to reduce the impacts of the oil boom in her community. Since its start, she and her husband, Walter DeVille, have worked with the nonprofit environmental organization Dakota Resource Council and with Earthworks, among others, to campaign for more regulations and more information on what contaminants are involved in fracking. There's a right way to do this, Finley DeVille says. It's creating those laws and environmental justice and enforcing it, making sure the industry is held accountable and responsible. Fort Berthold Power sued the Bureau of Land Management in 2018 after the agency rolled back the methane waste prevention rule, which is meant to reduce venting, flaring, and leaking from oil and gas operations. Members of Fort Berthold Power also went to speak in Washington, D.C., where they presented infrared images of harmful methane emissions from well pads, a spot where multiple wells are drilled within their community. This rollback was struck down in 2020. Currently, the organization is fighting the recent rollbacks of the National Environmental Policy Act, NEPA, a 50-year-old law that requires federal agencies to evaluate the environmental impacts of their actions, such as permit applications or land and water management. The new rollbacks limit this review and community input. President-elect Joe Biden has vowed to reverse these rollbacks. NEPA is very important and significant, Finley DeVille says. Everything that's under NEPA protects us as indigenous and native peoples that protects our grave sites, our historical and traditional cultural sites. It protects our water. All that is in danger now. Troutman at Earthworks says regulatory loopholes must be closed to prevent further spilling, clean up current spills, and address drinking water contamination. This past summer, New York became the first state to close the hazardous waste loophole, meaning that oil and gas waste will now be treated as other hazards. Pennsylvania in New Mexico are looking to do the same. While North Dakota has not closed these regulatory gaps, local efforts such as Finley DeVille's work have picked up steam. Just this month, Williams County northwest of the Fort Berthold Reservation extended a year-long moratorium on a proposed landfill for radioactive oil field waste by six months, with the County Board of Commissioners citing a desire to consider options for regulations and restrictions first. Finley DeVille, for her part, recently took an even bigger step towards change as well, running for state senate in November. Though she didn't win, she is working with the Native American Caucus now to get specific representation for the reservation at the North Dakota Senate and the House. The quest for clean land, air, and water is far from over. That's the reason I do what I do, she says. Next up is a piece published at thenarwhal.ca. This is written by Ben Parfit. On a late afternoon in early October, Anja Hutchins and Hans Kirschbaum 
walked out of their home at the edge of an expansive field dotted with Black Angus cows in B.C.'s South Peace River region. They herd their two dogs into the back of their pickup and drive up to the long, steep dirt driveway that takes them to a world they used to love but now barely recognize. After the ascent from the bucolic valley bottom, Kirschbaum guides the truck onto an industrial gravel road. Soon the couple passes by a natural gas processing plant, where a spire of flame shoots out of a tall flare stack. Beyond that lies a cavernous industrial water pit, filled with water from the nearby Pine River. And beyond that, a deforested patch of land dominated by two giant steel containers, painted a Mediterranean blue and filled to near capacity with a menacing brew of rust-colored wastewater. Strips of colorful plastic flagging hang above the containers, known as sea rings, to warn ducks and geese to stay out. Birds would quickly die in the stuff. Cows would perish drinking it. At the entrance to the clearing, the natural gas company operating in the immediate region, Crew Energy, has posted a sign emblazoned with the internationally recognized radiation warning symbol. Beside the symbol is another sign that says, Norm, maybe in the neighborhood. The unassuming acronym, Hutchins matter-of-factly explains, stands for naturally occurring radioactive materials. But there is nothing natural about radioactive elements, including radium, thallium, and selenium, suddenly appearing on the threshold of Hutchins and Kirschbaum's home and ranch. Something brought those potentially dangerous contaminants to their doorstep, and that something is the natural gas industry. Hutchins and Kirschbaum have been here before and know what to look for. They walk up to a spongy piece of industrial cloth lying at the base of one of the sea rings. The cloth is there to absorb any wastewater that may spill as trucks offload it into the tanks. Hutchins pulls a small device about the size of a cell phone out of her coat pocket and turns it on. It's a Geiger counter, which detects radiation. She lowers it until it almost touches the cloth. Instantly, clicks begin to emanate from the counter as radioactive particles interact with gas inside the counter's chamber. It doesn't take long for the counter to record 100 clicks per minute, at which point an alarm goes off. But the clicks just keep coming before topping out at 170 counts per minute, meaning the radiation level here is much higher than normal, naturally occurring background radiation that surrounds us at low levels from sources such as the sun. Hutchins and Kirschbaum have repeatedly asked Crew Energy and the BC Oil and Gas Commission to test the water inside the sea rings, as well as the accumulated muck at the bottom of them. But they say the company has refused, leading the couple to take matters into their own hands so they know what they're up against. After turning the Geiger counter off, Hutchins and Kirschbaum return to the pickup truck, which is parked just in front of a metal grid known as a cattle guard, that's intended to keep their cows from wandering onto the site. We're not against the gas industry, Hutchins says. I mean, we all need those resources. We all depend on it as well. But there need to be boundaries. And first of all, we must protect our water resources, which is the most important thing of all. Water is everything to the Peace River region's ranchers and farmers but it's also everything to the region's natural gas industry. And as that industry rapidly expands its water-intensive fracking operations, people like Hutchins and Kirschbaum fear their critical water sources could dry up or become poisoned. During fracking, tremendous volumes of water, sand, and chemicals are pumped at extreme pressure into rock formations deep below the ground. The earthquake-inducing force at which all that water is pumped busts open fractures in the rock, allowing trapped oil and gas to be released. But much of the pumped water then flows back to the surface, contaminated with whatever it has come into contact with underground. Typically, it is so salty 
that it would be lethal to all aquatic life if it was piped into a stream. Other contaminants typically include trace metals, chemicals, and hydrocarbons, and yes, sometimes radioactive materials. The amount of wastewater being generated by the fracking industry is dizzying. In just the immediate vicinity, there are as many as 21 sea rings belonging to crew energy, each capable of holding 5,000 cubic meters of wastewater, enough to fill two Olympic-sized swimming pools. If just a fraction of that water spilled or seeped into the ground at the wrong place, the consequences could be devastating for their ranch. And Crew Energy is just one of many companies operating in the region. Other companies, including Ovintiv, formerly Encana, Shell, and Canadian Natural Resources, have even bigger operations, producing greater volumes of wastewater. For 40 years, the natural spring has been the primary source of drinking water at Penalty Ranch which was purchased by Kirschbaum's father 40 years ago after he journeyed to northeast British Columbia from his home in Bavaria, Germany. The spring is also an essential water source for the couple's 300 head of thirsty cattle. Hutchins and Kirschbaum's greatest fear is that the industrial activity at the top of the hill above their ranch will lead to the contamination of their water. In July, Crew Energy received permits from the British Columbia Oil and Gas Commission to dramatically increase the amount of wastewater stored near the ranch. The company's plan involves building two massive wastewater pits and retiring all but eight of its sea rings. Each pit would require excavating holes deep into the earth. The pits would then be lined with three layers of thick industrial plastic and filled with up to 60,000 cubic meters of wastewater each. If the pits proceed, it will mean that eventually crew energy can store enough wastewater, potentially radioactive, to fill 64 Olympic-sized swimming pools close to the ranch and Worth Marsh, a body of water that may be the spring's water source. In an effort to stop this plan from moving forward, Hutchins and Kirschbaum appealed to the quasi-judicial Oil and Gas Appeal Tribunal to rescind the permits. A video hearing was held earlier this month, and the couple expects a ruling by early in the new year. In documents filed with the tribunal, Crew Energy said digging the pits will ultimately save it millions of dollars because it will no longer have to truck its wastewater to dispersed sea rings. But Hutchins and Kirschbaum say the pits pose a danger far greater than the sea rings. They're bigger, and they're sunk into the earth. If the pits leak, as similar pits have, the highly toxic wastewater will enter the ground deep below the surface, where it can more readily contaminate aquifers that feed springs. Quote, our biggest worry is our natural spring, our water situation. If we were to lose that, or it became contaminated, it would simply be devastating to our business. I do not see how we could get over that, Hutchins says. Underscoring her concerns just a short distance away, one of the couple's cows tilts its head into a pipe to drink the spring water trickling down to the field from the wooded slope above. When farming and fossil fuel interests butt heads, oil and gas almost always trumps cattle and crops, and the stakes just keep getting higher. The more wells the industry drills and fracks, the more water it uses. The more water it uses, the more wastewater it generates, waste that is rarely, if ever, treated because it is so toxic. Much of natural gas development, as previously reported in the narwhal, now occurs directly on farms or agricultural leases that farmers hold on crown or publicly owned lands. Significantly, many of those lands are in BC's agricultural land reserve. When the reserve was created in 1973, it was hailed as one of the most progressive pieces of farm-protecting legislation in the world. It was designed to bring an end to the steady erosion of farmland in the province, which was then losing about 6,000 to 7,000 hectares each year to other land uses, particularly urban development. 
But despite the reserve, fossil fuel industry development continues to erode the farmland base in the energy-rich northeast corner of the province. The development of the energy sector has exceeded the capacity of the current regulatory environment to protect farmland, concluded a committee appointed by Agricultural Minister Lana Popham to examine threats posed to the reserve. The committee, chaired by former independent MLA Vicki Huntington, went on to note in its 2018 report that unrelenting energy industry incursions on farmlands in northeast B.C. were making it, quote, increasingly difficult for many farmers and ranchers to effectively use their land. The committee called on the government to ensure that provincial agencies, like the B.C. Oil and Gas Commission, worked more closely with the B.C. Ministry of Agriculture to help the province's increasingly besieged agricultural sector. Hutchins and Kirschbaum now must wait to see what the tribunal does in response to their pleas, but they know their chances of success are not good. Penalty Ranch obtained agricultural leases from the B.C. Ministry of Forests decades ago, allowing it to graze its cattle on some of the same Crown or publicly owned lands where Crew Energy later set up operations. In 2016, alarmed by the company's encroaching operations, Hutchins and Kirschbaum filed an appeal with the tribunal, asking it to rescind Crew Energy's permits from the B.C. Oil and Gas Commission, allowing it to clear two patches of land in preparation for drilling and fracking five new gas wells. They lost that appeal, but were back before the tribunal again a year later, fighting another crew energy plan to build three more gas well pads and drill and frack another 22 gas wells. Some of that drilling and fracking would run under Worth Marsh, according to crew energy's diagrams. Hutchins and Kirschbaum were concerned that drilling and fracking could disrupt and contaminate water flows from Worth Marsh, in turn harming their spring. But the tribunal ultimately dismissed the couple's appeals because the lands owned outright by Penalty Ranch were not directly impacted by the proposed industrial activities. Only its agricultural leases were. The couple also argued crew could easily move elsewhere as the company had rights to drill and frack over a wide area of land. Already 10 pipelines, 50 gas wells, 12 sea rings, and one large freshwater storage pit was located on lands leased by Penalty Ranch. But once again, the tribunal was not swayed. In documents filed with the tribunal, Crew Energy said the toxic water entering the pits following the fracking process will, quote, undergo a filtration and separation process before being pumped in. But when the Narwhal emailed Paul Deaver, Crew Energy's vice president, to ask about the company's treatment plans, he refused to answer any questions and declined an interview request. Questions included where does Crew Energy take radioactive waste for disposal? Where does the company truck any of the muck that accumulates at the bottom of such pits? And what does Crew plan to do should one or both pits fail? Quote, Crew Energy Inc. adheres to legislative and regulatory requirements regarding its operations in British Columbia as regulated by the British Columbia Oil and Gas Commission, Deaver said in a brief email. Deaver did not expand on what those requirements were, but a scientific review of fracking operations released by a panel of experts in June 2019 found that radioactive material can accumulate in tanks and pits at fracking operations, and BC's regulations governing potential radioactive waste in such pits is not as rigorous as it could be. After reviewing wastewater pits at several fracking operations across BC, the panel characterized the risk of leaks from containment ponds as moderate to high. Two ex experts interviewed for the review told the panel's three scientists that, quote, they were not aware of any studies on NORM in BC, and that generally there is a lack of water quality data in BC, especially data on NORM concentrations. The review also found that companies themselves are responsible for identifying radioactive waste in their fracking operations, and that there are no wastewater treatment facilities for radioactive water in British Columbia. 
The panel was also told that there are virtually no searchable provincial records detailing where radioactive wastes originating in the province are sent. Seven years ago, pits very similar to the ones Crew Energy plans to build leaked, resulting in a massive cleanup effort. The failure occurred just north of Beryl Prairie, a farming enclave about a two-hour drive from Penalty Ranch, where Talisman Energy managed four wastewater pits. The leaks in one pit likely began in January 2013, but it was almost six months before Talisman Energy reported it to the BC Oil and Gas Commission. In the meantime, toxins flowed unchecked from the pit to the earth and groundwater below. Leaks were subsequently discovered at a second pit. As reported in the Narwhal, the contaminants initially discovered at the pit sites included arsenic, barium, cadmium, lithium, and lead. Shortly after the environmental disaster began, Talisman sold its operations in the region to Progress Energy Canada, subsidiary of the giant state-owned Malaysian corporation Petronas. Documents obtained by the Narwhal show the company that coordinated the cleanup, Secure Energy, had the muck at the bottom of the pits tested, and the results confirmed the presence of radioactive radium, thorium, and uranium at levels that are dangerous to people. This presented the company with a huge dilemma. How was it to get rid of all that radioactive waste? Initially, 15,000 cubic meters or enough to fill six Olympic-sized swimming pools, according to the correspondences between Secure Energy and the province. Secure Energy tried unsuccessfully to get the Ministry of Environment to allow the muck to be pumped into a hole in the earth at a distant, quote, disposal well near Fort Nelson, 500 kilometers away from the pits. But disposal wells are designed to take contaminated water, not muck, and certainly not radioactive muck. The ministry declined the application. Ultimately, Progress Energy paid for the contaminated muck to be trucked across two provincial borders to an underground salt cavern disposal facility near Unity, Saskatchewan, owned and operated by Tervita Corporation. Tervita also owns the sprawling Silverberry Landfill, about a 45-minute drive north of Fort St. John, which received thousands of cubic meters of contaminated soils from the pits. The Narwhal filed 11 questions with Tervita Corporation, including what fees it charges companies to drop off radioactive wastes, how much waste trucks typically deliver at a time, and how waste deliveries and disposals are tracked. But like Crew Energy, Tervita declined to directly answer a single question. Quote, we take pride in responsibly managing all aspects of our business to ensure compliance with relevant environmental and safety legislation, regulations, and standards, Kelly Sansom, Tervita's communications manager, said in an email. The cost to clean up the failed pits has never been disclosed, but based on a previous report by the Narwhal, which detailed initial cleanup costs at another wastewater pit suspected of leaking and contaminating groundwater and soil, the cost to truck away the wastewater alone would have been in the millions of dollars. If companies go bankrupt, taxpayers could end up on the hook for covering some or all of the cleanup costs, and getting rid of the contaminated water would have been only the beginning of a laborious process involving excavating and trucking away contaminated soils, disposing of the pit's contaminated liners, and moving all the radioactive mud far far away. Progress Energy has now installed four much larger wastewater pits just four kilometers east of Barrel Prairie, where all signs of the environmental calamity have been wiped away. All that remains there now is a recently graded field populated with patches of wild grasses and weeds. The BC Oil and Gas Commission has long known that the shale rock formations natural gas companies typically drill into and frack can be hotspots for radiation. According to an email obtained by the Narwhal, the Commission's senior petroleum geologist wrote to staff in 2016 to say that some of these formations, quote, would be expected to have norms at concentrations that were, quote, literally off the charts. Despite this, the 
commission does not require fracking companies to test for the presence of radioactive materials, and there is no requirement for companies that do testing to submit the results to the commission. Karen Hosford, an environmental consultant who has worked in the mining industry for companies like Tech Resources and who assisted Hutchins and Kirschbaum in preparing their appeals, calls the lack of testing requirements crazy. It was that lack of a commitment that led, Hudgen, led Hudgens and Kirschbaum to ask Crew Energy if they could collect their own samples for analysis, but the company denied the request, Hosford said. Basically, there's no onus on the company to do anything. They hide behind the regulator, and the regulator protects them, Hosford told the Narwhal. If the wastewater pits are dug near Penalty Ranch, both Crew Energy and the Commission say there will be additional safeguards in place to prevent leaks. Instead of only two liners in the pits, as was the case at the environmental disaster at Beryl Prairie, there will be three. But that's cold comfort to Hutchins and Kirschbaum. If two liners can fail, so can three. When Kirschbaum's father, Carl, bought the Penalty Ranch, he learned the previous owner had picked the name in honor of a tradition at the ranch. If a ranch hand did something dumb, like failing to latch a gate, they had to hoe a garden or muck out a horse stall as a penalty at the end of the day. Kirschbaum doesn't want the pits, but if they do go in, he says Crew Energy should pay a penalty of sorts if things go wrong. If the first and second liners in the pits start to leak, Kirschbaum thinks the company should have to immediately absorb the costs associated with swiftly draining all of the water and muck out of the pits before the third layer and last line of defense fails as well. Quote, the pit should be emptied and liner one and liner two fixed, Kirschbaum says. Hutchins agrees. As dusk approaches and she and Kirschbaum prepare to leave Crew's sea rings behind, it doesn't take a Geiger counter to see that whether the fracking industry's wastewater is stored in a pit dug into the earth or in tanks above the ground, it is dangerous stuff. We love living in such a beautiful place, Hutchins says, but it's heartbreaking to see how our once so quiet and natural ranch is turning into an industrial site. There has to be a bit more of a balance. And with that, she and Kirschbaum get back into their pickup truck and head home. Next up is a piece published by whyy.org, written by Susan Phillips. This story originally appeared in State Impact, Pennsylvania. A fracking wastewater treatment company is exploring the possibility of constructing an underground deep injection well in Dimmick, Susquehanna County. If approved, it will be the first deep injection well built to handle fracking wastewater in eastern Pennsylvania. The Environmental Protection Agency has permitted at least 36 new underground wells to dispose of fracking waste since 2013 but all are in the western part of the state. A spokesman for EPA said representatives of the company Kendra 2 have met with agency officials to discuss plans for the well, but have not submitted an application. The State Department of Environmental Protection said it has had no contact with the company about its plans. Calls to an attorney for the company were not returned, but a man who answered the phone at Kendra 2 said they were, quote, exploring the possibilities. Deep injection wells can stretch more than a mile below the surface and are used by the oil and gas industry to dispose of the most hazardous waste material, including salty brine, chemicals, radioactive waste, and heavy metals. The wells are typically permitted to take between 1,300 to 3,200 pounds per square inch of pressure, which sends the fluid into a sandstone or limestone formation. The U.S. Geological Survey has linked an uptick in earthquakes in Oklahoma to oil and gas wastewater injection wells in that state, at distances up to 10 miles from the site of the disposal well. Earthquakes in Ohio have been linked to deep well injection, and one in Newcastle, Pennsylvania was linked to fracking. 
in Pennsylvania Class II wells are regulated by the EPA through the Underground Injection Control Program via the Safe Drinking Water Act. The DEP also has to sign off on the wells. Frack waste can be treated at private treatment facilities. The process cleans most of the water, but at least some amount of fluid or solid cake still needs to be injected back into the ground or taken to a landfill. In early November, people living within 1,000 feet of the planned well began receiving letters from the Springville, Springville Pennsylvania-based company informing them of the project and the state law that requires well water testing. Paul Karpich, who received one of the letters, said he's worried about groundwater contamination. I moved here in 1982, and it was pristine, but no longer, Karpich said. I retired to this area, but fracking has changed my feelings about it. Gas drilling by Cabot Oil and Gas has damaged some drinking water wells in the area, and the company is still barred from drilling in a nine-square-mile area. The DEP determined that, a f that faulty well construction led to methane leaking into the aquifer. Further tests of residential drinking water have also revealed chemicals and heavy metals. Chuck Winschu leased his land to Cabot, and his neighbor's property has two well pads. He says the royalties he and his neighbors receive for fracking help, quote, with all the aggravation that comes with living within a heavily drilled area but he says that won't be the case if a deep injection well is permitted. There would be no benefit to Dimmick at all, he said. If your well goes bad, your house is worthless. EPA and DEP permits for other injection wells across the state require monitoring for groundwater contamination and seismic activity. Next up is a piece published at Gizmodo earther.gizmodo.com, written by Darna Noor. The Danger of Big Oil's New Methane Emissions Pledge On Monday, 62 oil majors that represent 30% of the world's oil and gas production signed an international agreement to report methane emissions with a far higher level of transparency. The pledge signed by the likes of BP, Shell, and Total is a part of the Oil and Gas Methane Partnership 2.0, led by the United Nations Environmental Program, the European Union, and the Environmental Defense Fund. Each year, the partnership will publish a report on companies' emissions and how they compare to reduction targets. It's a big step, but also not in line with what's needed to really address the climate crisis. Emissions of methane, a powerful greenhouse gas with more than 80 times the global warming potential of carbon dioxide in the short term, are on the rise. Recent research found that global annual methane emissions increased 9% from 2000 to 2017 due to the massive uptick in production of natural gas, especially through fracking. In a press statement, UNEP described the new reporting framework as a new gold standard, claiming it could help the fossil fuel industry deliver a 45% decrease in methane pollution by 2025 and a 60-75% to reduction by 2030. The pledge is the latest sign that the climate movement has fossil fuel companies sweating. Recent years have seen a massive uptick in protests, lawsuits, and policy proposals demanding the world draw down its greenhouse gas emissions, and the pledge is a sign that corporations can't ignore those calls any longer. Quote, For decades, the game plan of the oil majors like Exxon, Shell, and likely many others, was to deny the problem itself. Siriram Madhusudunan, Deputy Campaigns Director of Corporate Accountability, said, referring to the troves of evidence that these fossil fuel giants waged misinformation campaigns, to quell knowledge of the dangers their products pose to the climate. Quote, What's clear is the lengths that the industry is going to now in order to appear that they're responding to campaigners. It's a testament to the broader pressure that they're feeling right now. But in reality, the pledge does nothing 
to meet those organizers' demands. We need an actual plan to stop fossil fuel expansion, Madhusudunan said. At the core of it, what campaigners are demanding isn't greater transparency around these emissions. It's an actual plan to do that. That's not to say that misreporting emissions has not been an issue. For instance, in the months leading up to the UN's 2016 International Climate Conference, China revealed that it had underestimated its coal burning by 17%, and thereby undercounted its greenhouse gas emissions by 1 billion tons. On methane specifically, a 2020 study found that global estimates of methane emissions from natural sources have been far too high, suggesting that the oil and gas industry may be responsible for 40% more methane in the atmosphere than previous estimates. Quote, the oil and gas industry has routinely and massively underestimated methane emissions associated with drilling, which has helped them sell their bogus narrative that fracking is a cleaner form of fossil fuel extraction, Mitch Jones, Climate and Energy Program Director at Food and Water Watch, said. But merely reporting methane emissions levels will not result in the reduction, no matter how accurate those reports are. Without a plan to stop extracting fossil fuels and keep them in the ground, transparency isn't a real solution. It's really just greenwashing, Madhusudanen said. At best, this pledge could make it easier to push companies to meet more ambitious pollution targets, but do nothing to enforce that they make real reductions. But at worst, it could lend legitimacy to companies that signed by giving them cover to say they're taking on the climate crisis, even if they don't do anything to actually lower their emissions. Companies that sign the pledge might continue with their same polluting business plans, and yet could be seen as more climate-friendly than those which didn't. Notable ones include Chevron and Exxon, even if they continue producing billions of barrels of climate-warming oil and gas every year. Quote, the fact that the United Nations is a part of this is troubling. They stand to risk giving that official United Nations tinge to these companies without doing anything to regulate them, Mahusudanen said. We all know from what UN scientists are saying just how little time we have to respond to a problem in 10 years. We don't want to look back at programs like this and be like, oh, well, they were very transparent about their emissions, so at least we knew that they were continuing to increase. Instead, we need binding international regulations on fossil fuel production, and fast. We cannot waste time on new industry-friendly emissions tracking. What we need to do is ban fracking and transition off of fossil fuels, Jones said. There is no point in finding novel ways to quantify the harms inflicted on our planet by fossil fuel corporations. Next is a piece published at post-gazette.com, and that is the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, and this is written by Laura Legere. The Pennsylvania Department of Environmental Protection is pushing ahead to strengthen regulations specific to the state's conventional oil and gas industry, but first it is trying to win back the industry's confidence, which on a side note begs the question, who is regulating who? And I think we'll learn a little bit more about that as we proceed. Proposed updates to the rules have stagnated for more than a year while the industry sought to craft a new and in some respects weaker law tailored to its operations. Industry should not be crafting laws that govern their own regulations, period. However, it is standard practice. It is common everywhere, federally, in states, in local areas, the industries impacted by the regulations very often draft those regulations themselves. And then, of course, get the um, elected legislators to pass what the industry drafted. That attempt in Pennsylvania foundered last week when Governor Tom Wolf vetoed Senate Bill 790, saying it, quote, would contrib contribute to a legacy of environmental degradation. 
While the bill aimed to address distinct challenges faced by conventional oil and gas industry, whose operations are smaller and less expensive than Marcellus and Utica shale drillers, it also would have rolled back protections for drinking water supplies and public resources, allowed more spills to go unreported, and avoided erosion permitting requirements, Mr. Wolf wrote. The governor's veto was no surprise. Mr. Wolf, a Democrat, vowed to do so in January when the bill was last amended. The bill passed by, by the Republican-led House in May and Senate in November contained the same provisions Mr. Wolf and DEP objected to at the start of the year. Still, with the veto fresh in mind, leaders of conventional oil and gas companies, trade groups, and their allies in the legislature called DEP out as untrustworthy on Thursday during an industry-led advisory committee meeting held by video conference. The primary items on the agenda were two sets of rules for waste management and above-ground activities at conventional oil and gas sites that DEP wants to update through its authority under Pennsylvania's existing environmental laws. Quote, DEP has now chosen to flex their muscles and teach us all a lesson said David Clark, president of the Pennsylvania Grade Crude Oil Coalition. Ramming the most punitive set of regulations on this industry to date during the worst commodity collapse in 20 years is appalling. Pennsylvania's conventional industry has been hobbled this year by low oil and gas prices that are a side effect of the broad economic constriction caused by the COVID-19 pandemic. Through November 27, only 48 conventional wells were drilled in the state this year, compared to 163 wells drilled during the same period in 2019, according to DEP records. The proposed rules are still in the early stages of development. The governor's regulatory agenda estimates a first draft could be brought to an environmental board by the middle of 2021. The proposals contain requirements to reduce disruptions to protected public resources near well sites and ensure that damaged drinking water supplies are restored to a safe quality. They also include provisions that will significantly decrease the time it takes to get a permit for an underground waste disposal well by making federal and state reviews concurrent. DEP's Deputy Secretary for Oil and Gas Management, Scott Perry, said the agency is not in a hurry to complete the rules, but has an obligation to move them forward. Regulations for surface activities at conventional oil and gas well sites have been largely unchanged for two decades. I hope you will believe me when I say that the DEP, we are not averse to your industry. We are not your enemies, Mr. Perry said. I think we have taken a number of steps to demonstrate our commitment to maintaining an open and honest dialogue. Industry members of the Pennsylvania Grade Crude Development Advisory Council were not reassured. We can sit here and talk about wanting to work together, said Joe Thompson of Venango County-based oil and gas producer Devonian Resources. We watch what you do now, not what you say. Industry members said it's DEP's burden to prove that the new regulations are necessary before they are asked to consider the agency's proposed changes. In his veto message, the governor wrote that the conventional industry is incurring environmental violations, quote, at three to four times the rate of the shale gas industry. But industry advocates argue that violations of existing rules don't prove the need for new ones. It'll be very hard for me to work on regs to harm our industry when there is no need for them and you can't show a need, said Mark Klein, whose family owns Bradford-based Klein Oil. Pennsylvania environmental and economic development officials hope to have another meeting to discuss the proposed rules between now and the next scheduled advisory council meeting in April, but the council had little appetite to speed up the review. A motion to add a meeting in February was voted down. Next up, a piece published at commondreams.org written by Brett Wilkins. Students at a Colorado high school on Monday published a poignant video pleading with local authorities to ban a proposed hydraulic fracturing operation near their campus. 
The video produced by the Niwot High School Environmental Club in Niwot, a small town of 4,100 residents, located about 35 miles north of Denver, calls on the Boulder County Commission to ban fracking. The student's school is located just three miles from the proposed Crestone Peak Resources fracking site, which with 140 wells would be the largest such facility in Colorado. Quote, the idea that elected officials would allow for something that is so detrimental to the environment and to our health is mind-blowing, said Niwot High School freshman Desta Soma in the video. The students timed the video's release to coincide with a Tuesday county commission meeting where members will hear public comment on proposed revisions to local regulations governing oil and gas operations. Quote, We, the youth of Colorado, simply ask our elected officials to do their job to protect us by using their power and the opportunity presented by SB 19-181 to prevent Colorado's future implored Niwot High School senior Maya Bovino, referring to a measure signed into law last year by Governor Jared Polis that gives local authorities more power to regulate fossil fuel companies' activities. Especially during a pandemic, if anything were to happen to the outdoors, it would be a disaster for my mental health as well as that of my friends, Mercer Stouch, a junior, said in the video. Another unidentified student added that fracking, quote, affects us mentally, physically, and socially. Last September, a Boulder County District Court judge dismissed 20 of 34 claims in a lawsuit filed by the commissioners in an effort to halt Crestone, one of the largest oil and natural gas extractors in the Denver-Julesburg Basin, from developing the site. Residents of Boulder County already suffer from exposure to high levels of carcinogens and toxic ozone caused by the more than 20,000 active oil and gas wells in neighboring Weld County. One of the Niwot students in the video described having to endure, quote, a brown haze layer that is steadily growing. Another said that some days we feel burning sensations in our lungs. We shouldn't be afraid for our health when we step outside our own houses asserted yet another. And finally, a piece published at theconversation.com. This piece is written by Stephanie Mallon. Fracking takes a toll on mental health as drilling and truck traffic rattle neighborhoods. Hydraulic fracturing has boomed in the U.S. over the past decade, but unless you live near it, you may not realize just how close fracking wells can be to homes and schools. In Colorado, the well bore, the hole drilled to extract oil or gas, can be 500 feet from someone's house under current state rules. In some states, like Texas, drilling can be even closer. For people living in these areas, that means noise, pollution, and other stressors that can harm physical and mental health. People with homes near fracking operations describe vibrations that can make sleep difficult and disturb their pets. Truck traffic around well pads adds to the noise, dust, and other airborne pollutants, creating another layer of industrial disruption. One woman I spoke with had a 30-foot-high sound wall put up around her property, but the parade of semi-trucks at all hours still rattled her home, and the sound wall couldn't keep out the noise. When she opened her bedroom curtains, all she saw was a brown wall where she used to have mountain views. As a social scientist who studies extractive industries and their environmental justice and health impacts, I have spent years in communities with unconventional oil and gas activity, visiting homes and well sites. My research shows that living near fracking sites can lead to chronic stress and self-reported depression. These effects often relate to systemic problems associated with the industry. The boom in hydraulic fracturing started around 2010 and made the U.S. the number one producer of hydrocarbons globally. In Colorado, fracking has since helped quadruple oil production and increased natural gas production. 
but that growth has come with consequences. By 2017, researchers estimated 4.7 million people lived within one mile of an unconventional oil or gas well in the U.S. Health studies have found respiratory difficulties like coughing and wheezing in people living and working near fracking sites. Other studies have found increases in endocrine-disrupting chemicals that can affect pregnant women and children, including raising the risks of birth defects and childhood cancers. Emissions of methane, a potent greenhouse gas that contributes to climate change, have also spiked around oil and gas activity. Less well understood have been the effects on mental health. In a new study on the mental health effects, I examined multiple communities across northern Colorado, surveyed hundreds of households, and visited people's homes, schools, and well pads. Two drivers of stress and mental health harm stood out. First, people report chronic stress and depression related to their uncertainty about environmental and public health risks and inadequate access to useful information about it. Second, stress and depression relate to people's experiences of political powerlessness, particularly in their ability to control the activity, where it occurs, and how it is regulated. Previous studies have suggested links to depression and lower quality of life, as well as social psychological impacts, such as increased tensions within communities. But these studies typically use surveys or government data. This new research looked closer at people's experiences. Imagine you live in northern Colorado. A company notifies you that it will start drilling in the open space in your subdivision, that you can see from your backyard or deck. You try to find information about the health or environmental risks, but that information is locked behind a publisher's paywall or it is buried in hundreds of pages full of technical language. One of the people I interviewed, a 45-year-old teacher who has lived in his community his entire life, talked about stress from the uncertainties of living near fracking. Quote, What's stressful is the unknowns and how this industry is operating behind a curtain all the time. When you don't know the chemicals they're pumping down, you don't know where they're getting the water, you don't know how much these tanks are leaking. To me, that is stressful, the not knowing. Other people reported feeling stress over uncertainties about long-term impacts. A retired former city worker said, quote, We're lab rats right now. They're learning about it as they're going. We don't know what the impacts are going to be 20 years down the line. Many people feel powerless to do anything about it. In Colorado, people typically have only three minutes to talk during public meetings, while the companies have more time to present their cases. A middle-aged woman living with a well pad about 1,000 feet from her deck explained why public meetings felt so exclusive. This was a public hearing, and they turned it over to an oil company to give their slideshow. The oil company proceeded to do about a two-hour presentation, so there was no time for public input. So four or five people out of a hundred people who wanted to protest got a chance to talk. It's very hard to be heard. These patterns emerged across my data. About 90% of the people I interviewed reported increased chronic stress related to nearby fracking operations, and 75% reported feeling long-term depression, particularly because of the uncertainty about the impacts and feeling powerless to stop it. What can be done about it? Governments could help address some of these systemic problems fairly quickly. The first step is to provide easy-to-understand, accurate information about the environmental and public health risks, as well as the economic risks and benefits. Governments can also give people more meaningful opportunities to participate in zoning and other decisions about how, when, and where hydraulic fracturing takes place. Fixing the health and environmental risks that underlie the stress is more challenging. The Colorado Oil and Gas Conservation Commission is expected in early November to finalize new drilling rules that include a 2,000-foot setback from homes. 
the widest statewide rule in the country, but wells could still be built closer. People I've interviewed have reported feeling a sense of empowerment by organizing with others to fight for more local control. But solutions aren't only the responsibility of governments or the public. Companies must be accountable, too. And that will wrap up this episode of Frack You Very Much, a fracking terrible podcast. Remember, you can go to frackyouverymuch.com. Check out all the back episodes there. You'll find a link to Flipboard, where I save most of these stories. You can also listen to Frack You Very Much playing live. In addition to all my other podcasts, that plays live 24-7 at movingtrainradio.com. Here is the band Anti-Flag with the song Gasland Terror. Thanks for listening. Oh, you're a turncoat and you're a thief. Cold-blooded killer, how do you sleep? I'm talking D-O-M-E-S-T-I-C. I see terror. High in their ivory towers, made of steel and concrete They scheme out the next ripoff, left bankers on Wall Street And their voices echo coldly, and the room takes on a chill As they raise their glasses up and seal the deal that they know kills Cause you're a turncoat, and you're a thief Cold-blooded killer how do you sleep? I'm talking D-O-M-E-S-T-I-C Terra! Inside the kitchen, broken in despair Their livestock sick or dead, the water a toxic cocktail And a husband starts to weep as he recites the Lord's Prayer Once they're American dream, now they're American nightmare Cause you're a turncoat and you're a thief Cold-blooded killer, how do you sleep? I'm talking D-O-M-E-S-T-I-C I won't give up I won't give in I will fight back Until the end I won't give up I won't give in I will fight back Until the end The end I won't stand for your gas land. No, I won't stand for your gas land. No, I won't stand. I won't stand for your gas land. For your gas land.